Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Washington taking steps to try to fix the baby formula shortage while moms take it into their own hands and help each other out. President Biden wants the WHO chief to be more powerful. Find out what the director general could do if new amendments are approved. A winner in Pennsylvania's Republican Senate primary is yet to be determined and results in Oregon's primary are being delayed. Find out what's holding them up. The New York Attorney General is investigating social media platforms used by the Buffalo mass shooting suspect to plan and live stream the attack. Washington is taking more steps to address the baby formula shortage. President Biden is invoking the Defense Production Act, and two bills are heading to the Senate after passing in the House late last night. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. As desperate parents struggle to feed their babies, the government is taking more action to help. When I get to work in the morning, I look for formula. When we're finally sitting on the couch for an hour at night, we're looking for formula. President Biden Wednesday invoked the Defense Production Act to help formula makers get ingredients more quickly. The Defense Production Act gives the government the ability to require suppliers to direct needed resources to infant formula manufacturers before any other customer who may have ordered that good. And he's speeding up imports, sending planes overseas. To pick up infant formula that meets U.S. health and safety standards so we can get it on the store shelves fast. Baby formula aisles at U.S. supermarkets have been decimated since top U.S. manufacturer Abbott in February recalled formulas after complaints of bacterial infections. Meanwhile, two bills are heading to the Senate after passing in the House late Wednesday night. The Access to Baby Formula Act has strong bipartisan support. It would allow low-income families to use their WIC benefits to buy more brands. WIC families purchase about half the formula in the U.S. Right now, they're limited to certain brands, including Abbott. It supplies 89% of infants who are covered under WIC. If we can't find it in the stores, then we lose our benefit. The second bill would provide $28 million in emergency funding to the FDA. Part of it would pay for more FDA inspectors at formula plants. Republicans objected to this bill. House Minority Whip Steve Scalise said it doesn't resolve the issue. It simply throws more money at the FDA. Criticisms growing about how long it took Washington to act since Abbott's plant shut down in February. Abbott said Monday that after FDA approval, it could restart the plant within two weeks, and it'd take another six to eight weeks for the product to reach store shelves. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Some U.S. mothers are hitting dead ends trying to find formula for their babies, and some of them are turning to other moms for help. Here's the story. Like many parents, Heather Nicholas is terrified, searching and searching near her home in Wesley Chapel, Florida, for baby formula for her five-month-old son, Roman. I don't have the formula that I need, so your mind doesn't stop thinking about it, especially at night. I hate to say, I've lost a lot of sleep. Desperate, Heather turned to social media. I had other local breastfeeding mothers who came to me and they were like, listen, you know, there's these groups. And in one of those groups, someone not too far away saw her plea. I have so much of a supply that I have a deep freezer that is um, absolutely full of milk. Callie Ayers, mom to five-month-old Elizabeth, has pumped so much extra milk that she wants to give it away to other moms. Putting myself into the shoes of those mothers um, is really what motivated me. Um, I can't imagine how scary that would be. So last week, Heather and Callie decided to meet in the parking lot of a nearby grocery store. (laughs) Nice to meet you. I brought you a lot. This is full. (laughs) I think I could tell that she was very um, stressed out um, trying to figure out how to feed her baby so I could just see like the stress lift off of her. I'm gonna try not to cry right now. You can cry. Oh, can I give you a hug? Yes, you can. (laughs) Okay. I was in your shoes when my baby was first born. Heather and Callie aren't the only ones doing this. Facebook, full of parents sharing breast milk with one another. 
But the American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't recommend this kind of unregulated sharing. Its spokesperson saying the quality and safety of the milk cannot be assured. You're not going through the process of getting that breast milk screened for infectious diseases or getting screened for things like drugs. You also don't know how old that breast milk is. You don't know what the process has been to keep it refrigerated. Heather says she feels comfortable with Callie. She was upfront about her situation and her lifestyle, her diet, all sorts of things. And was relieved to give Roman his first bottle of Callie's milk. The CDC announced Wednesday it's investigating 180 cases of unexplained severe hepatitis in kids from 36 states. That's up since the CDC's last update two weeks ago when the number of cases under investigation was 109 in 25 states. The cases date back to October 2021. According to the CDC, most of the children are under the age of five and nearly all have been hospitalized. About 15 needed liver transplants and five of the children have died. However, there have been no deaths since February. It's still a mystery what is causing the hepatitis, which is the general term doctors use to describe inflammation of the liver. Investigators say there may not be a single cause for it, but they have discovered that more than half of the children tested positive for adenovirus. That's a common virus that normally causes respiratory symptoms and upset stomach. A single case of the rare but serious monkeypox virus has been confirmed in Massachusetts. Recent cases in the United Kingdom, Spain, and Portugal have been linked to men who have sex with other men. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention confirmed the U.S. case on Wednesday. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health said the man poses no risk to the public and is in the hospital in good condition. Contact tracing efforts are underway. Monkeypox symptoms typically begin with flu-like illness and swelling of the lymph nodes. It progresses to a rash on the face and body. Most infections last two to four weeks. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health says the virus does not easily spread between people, but it is advising clinicians to consider a diagnosis of monkeypox in people who have an otherwise unexplained rash, traveled overseas in the last 30 days to places with confirmed or suspected cases, have had contact with confirmed or suspected cases, or if the patient is a man who reports sexual contact with other men. President Biden is pushing new amendments that would affect the head of the World Health Organization. If they pass, the director general would have new powers. He would be able to declare a public health emergency in any nation, and it would be based on whatever evidence he chooses. Biden sent the amendments to the organization in January. They are to be considered next week. That's when the United Nations meets for its 75th World Health Assembly in Geneva. An official at the Department of Health and Human Services wrote the WHO a letter on January 26th. It described how important it is to have equal access to medical countermeasures and how bad mis- and disinformation related to the pandemic are. It went on to say, the United States led an inclusive and transparent process to develop this decision, as we are mindful that updating and modernizing the international health regulations are critical to ensuring the world is better prepared for and can respond to the next pandemic. There are a few other changes included in the proposal. One is that the WHO doesn't have to get verification from a country where a health crisis is declared, nor does it have to consult with them beforehand. And the WHO can accept reports from sources outside of the nation in question. Another change is that the organization would set an early warning criteria for dangerous health risks of unknown causes. Those could be at the regional or national level or even worldwide. But what if the nation with the suspected problem doesn't cooperate within 48 hours? Another amendment would force the WHO to share that country's information with other nations. But do the amendments really address equality in health care? The documents don't say how U.S. officials believe giving the director general this power would do so, particularly because this new power could be based on information sourced outside the affected nation. The Epic Times searched the White House press office's website. The outlet only found one veiled reference to the amendments. That was on a fact sheet in February saying the U.S. will continue to advance pandemic preparedness abroad, and that included strengthening the WHO and targeting international health regulations amendments. Vote counting continues in Pennsylvania for the Republican U.S. Senate nomination. And in Oregon, primary results are delayed because of one county's blurry barcode ballots. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg reports. 
Suspense is growing in Pennsylvania's Republican Senate primary. Mail-in ballots continue to be counted as celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz and businessman David McCormick await the results in a race too close to call. Oz now has a projected 31.2% of the vote against McCormick's 31.1%. In Pennsylvania, an automatic recount is held when leading candidates are within a 0.5% difference. Thousands of votes have yet to be counted. Most are absentee ballots. The Pennsylvania Secretary of State's office says more than 100,000 mail-in ballots have yet to be counted and that it could take a few days to report unofficial results. Around 20% of mail-in ballots counted in the Senate race so far were for the Republican Party, suggesting there could be over 20,000 more Republican votes. Trump-endorsed Oz is being urged to declare victory by the former president. And in Oregon, blurry ballot barcodes are delaying primary results. Seven-term incumbent Democratic Congressman Kurt Schrader represents Oregon's 5th Congressional District. He is in a tight race with progressive candidate Jamie McLeod Skinner. The race remains too close to call, largely because of results outstanding from Clackamas. County Chairwoman Tootie Smith said at a news conference the county offered Hall extra staff in early May when the problem with the defective ballots were discovered, but Hall didn't accept the offer. They have known about the blurred barcodes for weeks. They must take the steps necessary to correct this problem they knew about weeks ago. Election workers are transferring the votes to fresh ballots by hand so they can be counted. We will assist them by supplying additional people and any other resource necessary to ensure a timely, accurate election process and honoring voter integrity. Hall says the tally will be done by June 13th, which is the last day to certify results under state law. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. U.S. cybersecurity officials are ordering all federal civilian agencies to fix flaws in a widely used software program. The software is made by VMware and has a vulnerability that may allow hackers to remotely access computer files. The emergency directive gives agencies five days to either update the software or remove it from their computer networks. VMware issued a fix for the software on April 6th, but not all users have updated their computers. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency wants to avoid another national incident like the SolarWinds hack. New York Attorney General Letitia James said that state authorities have launched an investigation into several social media platforms. They believe the accused Buffalo grocery store gunman used the platforms to plan, promote, and broadcast the attack that left 10 dead. Here are the details. New York Attorney General Letitia James announced on Wednesday that her office is investigating a number of social media companies the suspected Buffalo grocery store gunmen used to plan, promote, and stream the attack that left 10 dead. In a tweet, James mentioned Twitch, 4chan, 8chan, and Discord, along with other platforms the accused shooter used to amplify the attack. The FBI said 18-year-old Peyton Gendron opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle on Saturday at a grocery store in Buffalo, shooting 13 people. Gendron, who surrendered to police after the attack, apparently publicized a racist manifesto on the internet and broadcasted the attack in real time on social media platform Twitch, a live video service owned by Amazon.com. The FBI described the act as racially motivated violent extremism. New York Governor Kathy Hochul on Wednesday said she hopes to strengthen the state's red flag law by issuing an order for state police to seek emergency orders to stop individuals from possessing weapons if it is believed that they are a threat to themselves or others. Gendron has been jailed without bail on a charge of first-degree murder. He pleaded not guilty. A volunteer team of professional crisis counselors traveled to Buffalo, New York with their comfort dogs. Their man's best friend helped locals deal with the trauma of the recent shooting at a grocery store. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. It's the Tri-State Canine Response Team's 11th deployment, with the first being the Pulse nightclub shooting on June 12, 2016. The group that deployed to um, Buffalo are from Florida, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. We got an invite to come to help the community after the mass shooting. We support first responders and the community, family members and victims. On Tuesday afternoon, the team arrived at the Topps Friendly Market store, seven miles away from the one that was the scene of the shooting. Well, the dogs work with us as we're crisis counselors, 
They help us work with the individuals after something happens to kind of start to rebuild the resiliency in the community. There are, we call them our co-therapists sometimes. So they'll be able to make the person feel comfortable to de-stress. The Tri-State Canine Response Team is staying in Buffalo at least until Friday, Campbell said. It's raising money for this month for Mental Health Awareness Month so that it is able to travel when it is needed. The dogs that we work with are non-judgmental. They'll be able to meet the person after something traumatic has happened to be able to help them de-stress, to be able to give them support in a time where they need to be able to start to communicate and discuss how they're feeling and what they've gone through. 18-year-old Peyton Gendron is accused of shooting 13 and killing 10 in a predominantly African-American neighborhood of Buffalo on Saturday. Authorities say he carried out an act of racially motivated violent extremism on Saturday at the Topps Friendly Market. Gendron has been jailed without bail on a charge of first-degree murder. He pleaded not guilty. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Members of the Buffalo Bills football team were at the scene of the deadly shooting in a supermarket over the weekend. They paid their respects to the victims and volunteered at one of many soup kitchens that popped up near the scene. Bills players arrived on three tour buses. They marched two blocks to the site of the attack, wearing shirts with the words, Choose Love, above the Bills team logo. After laying flowers in front of the store, team members greeted fans and helped serve food at a food bank. According to a post on the official Buffalo Bills Twitter account, the team's foundation is donating $200,000 to support local response efforts to the attack. The NFL Foundation will be matching the donation with an additional $200,000. Judges on New York State's top court heard arguments in Albany on Wednesday over whether an elephant named Happy should be freed from the Bronx Zoo. An animal rights group says Happy is covered by a law that protects against unlawful imprisonment. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. The 51-year-old Asian elephant has called the New York City Zoo home since 1977. Happy has been kept apart from other elephants in a one-acre enclosure at the zoo since around 2006. The deprivation of the bodily liberty is being confined in alone and in a one-acre pen, and we think she's also detained in a barn for a lot of the times when it's cold because elephants don't, they're not cold, you know, cold-weathered species. Um, so she spends a lot of her time in a barren sort of cell or in a one-acre pen without another elephant. Four years ago, the Florida-based Non-Human Rights Project began asking New York courts to release Happy to one of two elephant sanctuaries in the United States, saying the animal was being illegally imprisoned. The group has said that Happy was entitled to habeas corpus. New York's habeas corpus law does not define person, and the group said Happy should be recognized as one. That the scientists are unanimous that Elephants aren't just autonomous, but they're also uh, cognitively complex, emotionally intelligent, altruistic, highly communicative, and, of course, autonomous. The Court of Appeals session was meant to address if an elephant is entitled to habeas corpus after two lower courts sided with the Bronx Zoo. So does that mean that uh, I couldn't keep a dog? I mean, dogs can memorize words, and I think most people who have dogs or any kind of domesticated pet that way would say, but they feel there's a special connection and a bond. The Court of Appeals did not specify when it would rule. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Convicted pharmaceutical executive Martin Shkreli was freed from prison after serving much of a seven-year prison sentence. He was accused of lying to hedge fund investors and cheating investors in a drug company. The former investor became known as PharmaBro. That's for raising the price of a drug often used to treat AIDS patients to $750 a pill. He was criticized by Congress for the move. He has defended his decision by saying insurance and other programs ensured that people who need the drug would ultimately get it. The convicted felon is now at a halfway house. The man's full release from federal custody is projected to come on September 14th. He was sentenced to the seven-year term after a 2017 conviction for lying to investors about the performance of two hedge funds he ran, skimming money for himself from those funds, and defrauding investors in a drug company by hiding his ownership of some of its stock. He was also ordered to forfeit $7.3 million. 
An escaped inmate from Texas is still on the run six days after he escaped while being transported to a prison medical facility. Authorities say 46-year-old Gonzalo Lopez stabbed a guard on the bus, causing the bus to crash. He then ran away. The Texas Department of Criminal Justice says the perimeter of the search has narrowed to an area of about five square miles, and authorities believe they could find Lopez soon. Hundreds of law enforcement officers are continuing the -the round-the-clock search effort on foot, on horseback, and by air. They said it's the department's largest concentrated manhunt ever. No prison clothes have been found, so authorities believe Lopez could still be in them. Lopez is serving back-to-back life sentences for shooting at a sheriff's deputy in 2004 and killing a man after holding him ransom on a drug debt. There is a $50,000 reward for his arrest. A growing wildfire in Texas has authorities asking some people to evacuate. The Mesquite heat fire near Abilene has grown to about 5,000 acres and has already destroyed several homes. There are no reports of injuries. The fire is only 10% contained. The Taylor County's Sheriff's Office said Wednesday that the evacuation recommendation is currently voluntary, but winds could change conditions on the ground quickly. Coming up, Nebraska makes plans to build a canal in Colorado. The structure would divert water out of the South Platte River as a water rights battle brews between the two states. MasterCard is rolling out new technology that allows consumers to pay with their face, but the technology is controversial and some veer it can be compromised. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. A water rights battle is brewing between Colorado and Nebraska amid a severe drought. Now Nebraska plans to build a canal in Colorado to divert water out of the South Platte River. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Nebraska rancher Steve Hansen is concerned about water. Urban population growth in neighboring Colorado is threatening to divert water resources away from Nebraskan farmers. That's one of our fears as we see the the huge urban developments, I, I hesitate to use the word sprawl, but the huge urban developments in Colorado is threatening some of our water. Almost 100 years ago, Nebraska and Colorado signed an agreement that divided South Platte water during growing season. It also stated Nebraska could build a canal in Colorado to capture surplus flows after growing season was over. For 99 years, Nebraska officials held off on a canal. But this spring, the state legislature voted to begin funding the project. Uh, On the South Platte, that water is used to uh, supply water for human needs, for the municipalities that have all grown up, and for agriculture. Colorado farmers are bracing for the impact. On the high plains of northeastern Colorado, Don Schneider is planting hundreds of acres of corn. Through the canal, Nebraska can stake a claim on that surplus water under the agreement. Snyder says that means he and his neighbors won't be able to replenish their wells. When we get this demand from Nebraska that they want to put in the canal and they want to pull some of this water that we're used to taking for our augmentation, it, it like I said, it's very unsettling of what, what the future could, could hold for us if we can't pump our wells. Fifth generation Nebraska cattle breeder Hansen supports the canal. He says he understands that Colorado farmers use surplus flows to replenish their aquifer, but any extra supply could help prolong his operation. It's going to have to be a collaboration. You know, we're going to have to get along with uh, our neighbors to the west in Colorado, and and I understand what they're doing now, and I I don't, you know, I would do the same if I were able to, but uh, I would like to see some of that water get over here and used for the purposes that it was originally intended for, and, and that would make a difference, I think. Farmers on both sides emphasize they'd like to see a workaround that serves everybody. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Millions of Americans are seeing surging utility bills with hikes on everything from fuel to electricity. And as we head into the warm summer months, your wallet could really take a hit as you try to cool down your home. In today's Consumer Watch, we have some quick and easy ways to keep those costs down. Utility bills are surging from water, gas, electricity, even trash collection. 
And with summer quickly approaching, millions of Americans could be faced with dangerously high costs. Unfortunately, it's going to be a heartbreaking and potentially fatal summer for families who can't afford electricity. The natural gas market is largely driving up huge hikes on fuel, oil, propane and electricity. But consumer experts say the war in Ukraine is also adding fuel to the fire. My bill is more than triple what it was last year in the same period of time. And so for people who live on a budget, this is a budget buster. Here are five tips to keep utility bills down this summer. Number one, use your dishwasher. While it does use electricity, it saves energy and water. The California Energy Commission says that could save you an average of 5,000 gallons of water each year. Also, air dry the dishes to reduce your dishwasher's energy use by up to 50%. Number two, ditch the thermostat and use a fan. A fan uses 10% of the energy that a central air conditioner does. Number three, switch to smarter bulbs. LED bulbs use at least 75% less energy than incandescent lighting. Number four, use cold water when you wash laundry. Consumer Reports says 90% of the electricity used to wash a load goes towards heating the water. Number five, check the air ducts. Holes, clogs, and leaks can lose around 20% of the HVAC's efficiency. Businesses are blaming credit and debit cards for higher prices at some stores. Credit card giants Visa and MasterCard raised their interchange rates, also called swipe fees, last month. Merchants pay the fees to banks and credit card companies for transactions made with credit or debit cards. The fees are not a flat rate. They are vary depending on several factors, including the retailer, type of card, and transaction size. Some retailers say the increased fees will force them to raise prices on consumers or stop accepting certain credit cards. Visa and MasterCard claim the fees help pay for rewards programs and banking services and guarantee payment in cases of consumer overdraft or fraud. Fumbling for your phone or hunting for your wallet at the checkout may soon be a thing of the past. MasterCard is rolling out next-generation biometric technology that will allow you to pay using your face. But this controversial technology has also raised some eyebrows. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg explains. A biometric checkout program will allow the technology that can already unlock your phone to pay the bill. MasterCard is introducing a new app that will eliminate the need for passwords or PIN codes. It's a cool new technology which allows consumers to pay with a smile, their face, or just wave. The company has outlined a set of standards that apps must comply with. They say it helps ensure the security and privacy of personal data when people pay biometrically. MasterCard says doing away with passwords will make digital transactions safer. Ultimately, we want our payment experience to evolve with the way we live, the way we do business. And that's what we are doing here. We're making it as simple as, you know, opening your mobile phone. But not everyone is convinced we should be sharing our biometric data. Amos Toe of Human Rights Watch says the uniqueness of our biometric identifiers presents unique harms and can easily be compromised. If they are being stolen uh, as part of a data breach or if they are compromised in any other way, it's very difficult um, to recover that biometric identifier and to safely protect it again. And so this means that the privacy and safety concerns um, associated with using biometric identifiers are exponentially higher. Facial recognition technology is already in use commercially. A fast food outlet in Hangzhou, China, has allowed diners to pay by face since 2017. MasterCard says its first pilot program will launch this week in Brazil with the PayFace app. The company says it's also working with Pay by Face, Pop ID, and Fujitsu Limited. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Just ahead, Russia's deputy prime minister says half of Gazprom's customers have opened ruble accounts under a new payment plan. And the G7 is meeting to decide how to help Ukraine cover its bills in the coming months. And D-miners are risking their lives to clear unexploded ammunition in a town northwest of Ukraine's capital. There, the Russians have pulled out, but the crisis continues. All that and more after this short break. Half of Russian gas giant Gazprom's customers have opened Russian accounts. 
That says Moscow continues to force foreign countries to pay in rubles. NTD reporter Jeremy Sandberg has the details. According to Russian Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak, half of Gazprom's 54 clients have opened accounts with Gazprom Bank. As I understand it, about half of those banks have already opened special accounts in rubles and foreign currencies at our designated bank Gazprom Bank to ensure revenue earnings by converting them into rubles and paying for the gas provided in rubles. Almost all supply contracts signed between Gazprom and EU companies are in euros or U.S. dollars. But Russia has required European buyers to pay for its gas only in rubles. Novak said some major companies have already followed the new scheme. Payment for April deliveries happened in May, and in the next couple of days we will see a final list of those who had paid in rubles and who has refused. A UN spokeswoman says it's not advisable for companies to go beyond the European Commission's guidance, especially given the current sanctions against Russia. We have given guidance to the member states that says what it is that they can do. And what it is that they can do is open a bank account in the currency of the contract that they hold with Gazprom, make the payment to that bank account in the currency of the contract and issue a statement saying that for them this means that they have fulfilled their contractual obligations. In Germany, G7 finance leaders are discussing how to help Ukraine pay its bills as the war continues to drain its cash. An agreement could be reached by Friday. We um, see a number of uh, double-ditched billion euros uh, which are needed uh, for the foreseeable future of uh, the next months. And um, um, I'm quite optimistic that uh, we will be able at this G7 meeting to raise a funding which allows Ukraine to defend um, itself over the next month. Also on the agenda are soaring inflation, supply chains disruptions and an impending food crisis. At the Food Security Ministerial in the UN headquarters, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced emergency aid to ease world food shortage. This issue has now worsened with the conflict in Ukraine and the resulting supply chain disruptions. Today, given the urgency of the crisis, we're announcing another $215 million in new emergency food assistance. And we'll do much more. According to the U.S. Agency for International Development, by the end of the year, the war in Ukraine could drive up to 40 million people into poverty and food insecurity. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Russia says nearly 700 more Ukrainian fighters have surrendered in Mariupol. However, according to a pro-Russia separatist leader, commanders are still holed up in tunnels beneath the giant Azovstal steelworks. Russia's defense ministry released footage on Wednesday of what it claims are wounded Ukrainian soldiers from a besieged steel plant in the city of Maripol. The men appear to be in hospital beds, and a handful spoke briefly to camera. In the video, one says he had received medical treatment, another that they had been given food. It was not possible to establish if the men were speaking freely. Earlier on Wednesday, Moscow said nearly 1,000 Ukrainian fighters had surrendered since Monday. The soldiers have been holed up for weeks in the Azovstal steelworks as a last stand against Russian forces determined to take over Maripol. Top commanders of Ukrainian fighters are still inside the plant, according to the leader of pro-Russian separatists in control of the area. Maripol is the biggest city Russia has captured so far and allows Russian President Vladimir Putin to claim a rare victory in the war. The city of more than 400,000 people lies in ruins and Ukraine says tens of thousands died under Russian bombardment. The US on Wednesday became the latest country to reopen its embassy in Kyiv. Canada, Britain and others have also recently resumed embassy operations. A village in the German Alps is busy preparing to host the leaders of the G7 for a second time. Chancellor Olaf Scholz of Germany, whose country currently holds the G7 presidency, will hold the summit from June 26th to the 28th. The summit will be at the Schloss Almo Castle, the same location his predecessor, Angela Merkel, chose in 2015. The secluded luxury hotel was deemed ideal at the time to ensure privacy and security. The hotel's owner calls it a beautiful place everyone likes. Scholz will host the leaders of the U.S., Canada, Japan, Italy, France, and Britain. 
Ukraine's National Guard released a video showing the moment of explosion on a bridge in the Luhansk region. The video was released on Wednesday. It was said to show a joint special operation between Ukraine's security forces. They're fighting to slow down the advance of Russian troops in the Luhansk region. The location of the video was verified by roads and scenery, which matched satellite pictures. Ukraine's defense ministry has predicted many weeks of fighting ahead in the east of the country. Britain said last Friday that Ukraine stopped Russian forces crossing a key river in eastern Ukraine. Russian forces may have withdrawn from the Ukrainian town of Borodyanka, but the town is still faced with danger in the form of unexploded ammunition. Demining crews are now working to clear the area of ordnance. The Russians may have gone, but the war is not yet over in the Ukrainian town of Borodyanka. Fields outside the town are littered with unexploded ordnance. Clearing them up is a dangerous job. The ammunition can be unpredictable and can explode at any minute. But Demine Vladislav Vikul says someone has to do it. How do I say it? We're afraid all the time. But you have to do the job, because every ordnance and mine that we take out is at least one saved life. We have to do it. It's our job, our duty. Located northwest of the Ukrainian capital, Borodyanka was bombarded by Russian shelling during their failed onslaught on Kyiv in the early stages of the invasion. Russia withdrew its forces from around Kyiv in March to refocus their efforts on Ukraine's east. Now, demining crews carefully make their way through fields and woodland, searching for unexploded ammunition. The shells, missiles and mines they find are put deep into the ground before they are destroyed in controlled explosions. And the deminers say there is a lot for them to clear. Still to come, Peruvian police catch a pigeon that was smuggling cannabis to inmates. They caught the pigeon as it was drinking water on prison grounds after a rain. A German company is renting out vegetable gardens to planting hobbyists and to those who want to save on overheads amid rising food prices. We'll have more for you after the short break. The Salvadoran Navy presented a seized shipment of 1,700 pounds of cocaine out of a low-profile vessel in La Concordia, El Salvador. Authorities cited the low-profile vessel 560 miles outside the Salvadorian coast. When the authorities inspected the vessel, they found the drug packages hidden in the cargo-carrying area in the vessel, one that can act almost like a submarine. El Salvador's Minister of Defense said two of the detainees are from Ecuador, while the third detainee is a Colombian national. All detainees will be charged with illicit drug trafficking. El Salvador's security cabinet said the cocaine shipment found in the vessel has a value of 2.25 million U.S. dollars and was possibly destined for the coast of the southern state of Oaxaca in Mexico. A pigeon smuggling cannabis into a Peruvian prison has been caught by police authorities. The winged narco pigeon was intercepted as it landed on the grounds of the Huancayo prison to drink water in a puddle formed on the premises after the rains. When approaching the animal, the officers noticed it had a small package tied to its neck, and after capturing it, they observed it was a small bag made from light blue cloth wrapped with masking tape. The bird was carrying at least 1.05 ounces of marijuana, according to the police. The prison staff notified the public ministry to carry out investigations into the origin of the drug and the homing bird. Would you grow your own vegetables if you had the space and didn't have to do so much digging? A German company is providing these conditions and helping people save a little money. Pre-planted vegetable gardens became popular in Germany as a way to spend time during the pandemic. Soaring food prices are now driving demand again. It has definitely been developing very well in the last few years, and demand has increased. In the last two years, due to the coronavirus and now also due to the situation in Ukraine, food is getting more expensive. And if you rent a garden, of course you have the opportunity to provide for yourself to a certain extent. 
My Harvest rents out small plots of land across Germany for city dwellers to grow vegetables. This year, they have expanded their inventory by 15% to 3,500 plots. And the price? For about $240, you can get a plot of land over 500 square feet. And a brief introduction to tending your plot. It is not only affordable here, but you also could have fun at the same time. You could water your own plants and then see how, for example, tomatoes, potatoes, and so on grow, and then eat them yourself. Beginners are learning to water the radish and lettuce shoots that have poked out of the soil. Their first vegetables will be ready in about four weeks. Others may now be ready to try a second planting. It's worth it in the long run. I'm doing it for the second time now. I did it last year too, and last year I was looking for a hobby that was compatible with Corona and somehow found gardening quite cool. It depends how you do it. If you pre-plan after every harvest throughout the year, then this can also be noticed in the wallet. It depends on the motivation of everyone. The harvest also depends on the weather and how well the plants are cared for. One couple even managed to produce almost half a ton of vegetables in one season. The company says that vegetable growers can save between half and two-thirds of the cost of produce. Rome's urban vegetable gardens have seen a rise in applications to join after two years of the pandemic. The gardens remained open during the city's several lockdowns, providing a welcome break for people who were isolated in their homes. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Roman citizens have shown a renewed interest in green public areas. During the first period of the pandemic in Italy, almost every outdoor activity was prohibited. But urban vegetable gardens remained open and welcomed citizens who wanted a breath of fresh air. During the pandemic, something very interesting happened because everything was closed, including public parks. But since the urban vegetable gardens are something meant to be cultivated because it's city farming, in reality, they stayed open. Lots of people discovered these places because they were the only ones where one could walk and it was allowed to go because they were open and visible. The gardens also offer a way for Romans to socialize. In 2014, thanks to a friend, I received an email about this initiative, and together with a friend, we arrived here and we started this journey together to do some manual labor and share with other people a journey together and share ideas. At the beginning, it was only practical advice on the cultivation of the vegetable garden. Tre Fontane Urban Vegetable Garden was established in 2013. The garden is made up of 121 plots and approximately 300 associates. 20% of those plots have to be assigned to associations involved in social activities and promoting social goals. With COVID, we have been, let's say, a bit luckier than other categories because to be around the vegetable garden in periods when everything was closed was an opportunity compared to others. Because there was distancing, open air, which was not the case in public places like cafes and restaurants. Instead, here it is all open air and it was possible to talk being at a distance of even 30, 50 meters. Some people from a local public mental health institute cultivate some plots for therapeutic reasons, while some volunteers help children of immigrants with Italian lessons in the afternoon. And retirees can chat and play cards. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Just ahead, a former mobster is set to go on tour in the UK to share the stories of his criminal past and how he ultimately walked away from the mafia. And Tom Cruise receives a special tribute at the Cannes Film Festival. His upcoming blockbuster Top Gun Maverick is a big ticket draw at this year's festival. Stay tuned for more right after the short break. A former mobster who walked away from the mafia is now sharing the stories of his past. He's going on tour in the UK, focused on his own redemption and urging others not to take the same path. Michael Francis was a high-ranking member of the Italian-American Colombo crime family before he walked away from his life in the mafia nearly 30 years ago. You know, I was an aggressive guy and I was fortunate that I knew how to use the life to benefit me in business. You know, I, I understood, I had a great teacher in my dad and I was a pretty good listener. And so I kind of saw how that life could really benefit me. I had a head for business. And so that's the route that I kind of took, you know, becoming an entrepreneur in that life. Since then, Francis has sought to deter youngsters from joining organized crime. 
and has pursued a new career as a motivational speaker, author, and commentator. You know, I tell people all the time, if you're a made man in that life, you're part of that life, and you die of old age, and you die free, you've really accomplished something. And I mean that, because most everybody I know in that life, everybody, is either dead or in prison for the rest of their lives. So I feel very blessed to have, uh, you know, gotten through that. New York-born Francis is now 70 years old and is now bringing stories of his past and reformed life to the UK. He's kicking off a ticketed tour on July 2nd. You know, when I look back also, you know, people say, Michael, you know, do you miss anything about the life? And the answer is yes. You know, I do. I mean, I miss the, the camaraderie I had with my guys, you know. To me, at the time, there was nothing more powerful than this bond between men. You know, I got your back, you got mine. We're very close. Francis dropped out of college after his father, Colombo underboss John Sonny Francis, went to prison for a bank robbery in 1967. He became a capo, or captain, involved in various dealings, including a massive gasoline bootlegging scheme, and was briefly portrayed in the 1990 mob movie Goodfellas. He said making the decision to leave the mafia was gut-wrenching, but said he now felt blessed to be out. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Actor Tom Cruise is attending the Cannes Film Festival for the first time in three decades, and he receives the Palme d'Or, which is the highest prize at the event. Here are the details. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise and his Top Gun co-stars, old and new, joined the Cannes Film Festival in France on Wednesday. As the actor walked the red carpet for a screening of Top Gun Maverick, the French Air Force honored him with a special flyover. Cruise delighted his fans by signing autographs and posing for selfies. Many of his fans had been camping out since breakfast. We got up really early this morning, at 3 o'clock in the morning, and we've travelled from Carlisle in England, and um, we're staying in Nice, but we've just come to Cannes to experience the atmosphere, and we'd love a selfie with Tom Cruise. <laughs> Obviously, what he did back in the 80s was amazing, and we have high expectations for Maverick too. He is one of my favorite actors since forever. When I found out that he was coming, I was really like, I must see him, absolutely, one way or another. I love him since forever. Me, uh, me and my father watched Top Gun when I was a child. You know, I wish he could be here with me now, but instead I'm trying to get in to see the sequel for him. So hopefully we can get a chance to get some tickets and get in and see the movie, maybe even get a chance to meet him. The film festival awarded Cruz with its highest prize, the Palme d'Or, as a special tribute. Cruz addressed the crowd, saying, thank you for your time. I make these movies for all of you. And they all work so hard to bring this to the big screen. And it's a dream to be here. I'm never going to forget this evening. Joining Cruz were his fellow cast members, Jennifer Connelly, John Hamm, and Miles Teller, as well as producer Jerry Bruckheimer and screenwriter Christopher McQuarrie. Cruz received a sparkling send-off as he left the festival and fireworks lit up the sky. Top Gun Maverick is a big-ticket draw at this year's festival. It is the sequel to the fighter jet blockbuster that came out in 1986. It will be in theaters next Friday, May 27th. The Cannes Film Festival runs from May 17th to the 28th. If you're vegan or considering going vegan, it's important to keep an eye on your vitamin and mineral intake. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body and her tips on optimizing your health. There are many reasons people go vegan. Some people think it's healthier, some want to reduce their environmental footprint, and others are concerned about animal welfare. No matter what the reason, many people find it difficult to meet the nutrient intake targets for specific vitamins and minerals. These include vitamin B12, iron, calcium, and iodine. Number one, vegan food sources of B12. Vitamin B12 is abundant in animal foods, including meat, milk, and dairy products. While traces of vitamin B12 can be found in some mushrooms, nori, or fermented soybeans, more reliable sources include vitamin B12 supplemented soy or nut milks, 
and meat substitutes. Check the nutrition information panel on the label for the B12 content. Number two, vegan food sources of calcium. Although the richest sources of calcium are milk and milk-based foods, vegans can get calcium from tofu or bean curd, some fortified soy or nut beverages, nuts, seeds, legumes, and breakfast cereals. In a study of calcium intakes of 1,475 adults, vegans were below national recommendations. They also had lower calcium intakes compared with vegetarians, semi-vegetarians, pesco-vegetarians, and omnivores. Number three, vegan food sources of iodine. Major sources of iodine are seafood, dairy products, and eggs. If you are vegan, consider iodized salt, commercial bread made using iodized salt, fortified soy or nut milks, check the product label, and seaweed. Number four, vegan food sources of iron. Big contributors to iron intake are whole grain cereals, meats, chicken, and fish. If you are vegan, consider dark leafy greens, whole grain cereal and bread, beans, legumes, nuts, and seeds. Long-term vegans will also need to keep an eye on levels of vitamin D, omega-3 fat, and protein. A good strategy is to check in with your GP periodically to review your health and well-being. Also, be sure to see an accredited practicing dietitian. They can check whether you're getting all the nutrients you need. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.